Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there any one among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who is named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated, son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon the church and upon all, the, all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Can't tell you what a joy it is to actually be here. I wish I had time just to share my story a little bit and say what a miracle of God it is to even be standing here. Twelve years ago, I graduated from engineering school, and I never would have imagined that I would stand in front of people and have to preach, and now it's a delight. So before we get started, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, how desperately do we need you? Would you give us your spirit right now to give us words to speak, give us understanding of your truth, soften our heart and make us more like Christ. Please don't let us be hypocrites who hear your word and don't be doers of your word. Help me not to be a hypocrite, to proclaim that we live by the power of the Spirit, and yet I don't preach by the Spirit. Guide our hearts, God, to give us understanding, to see Christ, 
and to delight in him all the more because of our time together with you. Amen. God's answers to our prayerful requests for help are rarely what we ever expect them to be. We know this from experience in our life circumstances, but we still seem to struggle with it when it comes to church and spiritual things. For example, my wife Molly is a master cook in our kitchen. She'd shake her head no, but it is her domain of influence in the community even. We invite people into our home often, and she feels equipped and called to this task. She could make anything out of any ingredient in about a quarter of the time that it takes me to make a box of mac and cheese. And she does it with such order and such cleanliness. Everything in our kitchen has a place. Every tool better be where it belongs when she needs it. And as she's cooking, she's wiping down the counters and washing dishes so she has enough clean space and dishes available for when she's cooking. Yet, sometimes the task gets too great. There's not enough time left for what she needs to have done for all the people that are coming over. And so as the stress level is rising, she knows I got to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to calm my spirit and give me help. And so she prays that God would send her help and she's expecting some infusion of strength in her soul when the answer to her prayer is me and our four kids showing up with aprons and smiles on our faces ready to get dirty. And she knows that with us there, it is going to be a lot messier. She might get it done a little faster, but it's going to feel quite chaotic, and it might not turn out as she had expected. But this is a really good thing, because God put our family together in order that we could accomplish greater things as one instead of individually. It's through the struggles and messiness of family life that we are shaped into the unified and refined team that he wants us to be. But this is also the case for the church family as well. We want to be bold witnesses for Christ. We want to stand firm with our testimony in the face of threats and opposition. And so we pray. Tyler preached last week to us that God empowers his praying people. The disciples faced threats of persecution. They were going to be taken to jail if they continued to preach in the name of Jesus. So they prayed. They cried out to God for confidence, for boldness, for their spirit, his spirit to come into them and give them the ability to continue to preach. And God was pleased to answer that prayer by filling them with their spirit so they could preach. Now, if you're anything like me, when you hear that story being told or when Tyler was preaching on it, you probably were imagining in your mind, they're kind of hunched over and a little discouraged and God help us. And then right when he filled them with the Spirit, they were standing up tall with confidence like they had this infusion of power. They lifted their chins high and they were given confidence like a little five-year-old boy who's ready to conquer the world with a plastic sword, going out ready to face this opposition and take risks. But God's answers to our requests for help are rarely what we expect them to be. And I think our text today shows the means by which he empowers us to be faithful witnesses. Most most often, God answers our prayers through rather 
ordinary and quite messy processes, usually through the church family, us, messy, broken people. So this morning, we're going to look at how God answered the disciples' prayers through Acts chapter 4, 32 to 516. The disciples' prayer for the Holy Spirit's power comes in this text. It shows us how they received it, how they experienced this mighty power from God. So I want to spend time looking at this text today to see that the church's unity and purity are the display of the Spirit's power. If we want to be bold witnesses for Christ, almost counterintuitively, it begins with pressing into one another in unity and purity, becoming a more holy family. So we'll move through this text in three parts. First, take a look at the cause of the Spirit's unity at the end of chapter 4. And then move on and feel the threat in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the threat to the Spirit's unity in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. And finally, marvel at the result of the Spirit's unity in 12 through 16. So let's jump back to the text in chapter 4, verse 32. I'll just read those right at the beginning from 32 to the end of chapter 4 again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet." And then it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So remember that just before this story, the disciples had been threatened with persecution if they continued to preach in the name of Jesus. And their response, rightly, as we ought to when we face suffering, is to go and pray for help. And God was pleased to answer that prayer by giving them the Spirit, filling them with the Spirit. And it feels like that might be the end of that section. And we start 32, and it's kind of got this different feeling. But in the Greek manuscripts, it says, it uses a conjunction. That means and, or then, or now, as the ESV translates Either way, this word is indicating to us that what just happened applies right now to this section. It's like Luke is writing to show that the result of the filling of the Spirit is this incredible unity that they experienced. So what does the answer to prayer look like? Verse 32 says, The number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They had everything in common. Based on this section of the Spirit pouring out on them, we're supposed to read this and feel like this unity that they experienced is the response, is the answer to the prayer. This unity is extremely uncommon, only something that the power of the Spirit could bring. We're often told in church planting that we should be targeting some subgroup of people, Many people often ask us, who are the people that you're targeting in Rochester, Minnesota? 
Uh, are you trying to reach students at the college campus? Are you trying to reach medical professionals, maybe immigrants? Are you here of cowboy churches? And we say, um, all of the above? Paul said the gospel's for Jews and Gentiles, so everybody, we're going for everybody. These church growth experts are telling us the way you build and grow a church is to target a common interest in a group of people. And then you build the identity of your church around that so it makes people feel like this is where they're welcome. But that's not spirit-empowered unity. Anybody could start a club with a bunch of people who are just like themselves. I like myself, I like the things that I do, so if you like the things that I do, of course we're gonna get along. It's like looking in a mirror, how lovely is that? But try to start a club with people who are completely different. Try to build a club of rich and poor people, men and women, black, white, brown, red, yellow, laborers and professionals, young and old, even political enemies. Try to build a club like that and see how long you last. That's impossible unless the Holy Spirit indwells every single one of them. Then you have an incredible display of the Spirit's uncommon power in this world. And so we see in verse 33, what exactly is this source of impossible unity? With great grace, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit came upon them, gave them power to preach, to talk about Jesus, proclaim the gospel. Jesus died, rose from the dead, that is amazing power, and that's the power at work among us. And then the result was great grace upon them all. The Spirit poured out on the apostles this power, resulting in great grace centered around the gospel, around the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is the foundation of our unity. This is what ties such strange, a strange collection of people like us together. The answer to their prayer for power was this great grace in Christ resulting in unity. They weren't of one mind because they all shared a love for going to the athletic club or because they all hung out at the golf club together because anybody can do that. You see clubs like that everywhere. They were of one mind because they shared a love for Christ in common. And the Holy Spirit was in every single one of them, pointing them to Christ, all together, eyes on Christ. How could they not be unified? So then verses 34 and 30 to 37 give us the proof of this supernatural unity they have. 34 and 35 recall this prophecy, this expectation from Deuteronomy 15 of a time when God's people would be so faithful to him that there wouldn't be a single needy person among them. There would be poor all the time among them, but they wouldn't be needy. Their needs would be taken care of because of the generosity of everybody else caring for them. So when the Spirit came upon the church here in Acts chapter 4, they were finally able to fulfill this expectation. They sold all of their houses and their property in order to get more money and hand it to the apostles and trust the apostles will take care of everybody. Even if giving up my own land makes me one of the needy people. I know God's going to take care of us. And verses 36 and 37 show one man in particular who's lifted up as a prime example of this incredible grace at work. 
Luke wants us to know that this isn't a made-up story. He's not just saying, oh, if only it were like this, or trying to rally the troops with this cool hypothetical story. This really happened. There was a man named Joseph, Barnabas, we called him. He had land on his own, and he sold it and gave it to the disciples. You can go ask himself. You could go ask Joseph. Are you the guy? Yeah, I really did that. Or you could go down to the marketplace, go to the land, say, did you buy this from Joseph, the guy they call Barnabas? Yeah, of course. Luke is telling us, you may think that such unity is impossible, but go ask this guy. He's right there. I'm giving you details to investigate. This unity is a great grace. It's a display of the Spirit's power among us, among the early church. And we see in the section that generosity like this is just the natural outflow of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have that same Spirit alive in us. God is unchanging. He didn't change from 45 BC or AD whenever this was written. It's the same God then and today who dwells, indwells us if we trust in Christ by surrendering our lives to him. So we should expect to see some great, powerful work of God among us as well. Whenever we think of spiritual gifts, we often think of things like prophecy and speaking in tongues, things that I know you guys have studied in 1 Corinthians recently. But the point of all of that, remember, in 1 Corinthians 13 was love, the building of the church, unifying the church as one, this type of unity that we see here in Acts. That is the goal of the Spirit pouring out on his people. I'll explain this more in a little bit, but this specific type of work wasn't really a command. We're not told that every Christian must go sell everything and then give it all to the church, join some kind of communistic lifestyle. But it it certainly does make me wonder, what might the Spirit be calling us to do? What radical display of his power would he have us do? I've often dreamed of what it would be like to be part of a church where a bunch of people have debts and financial obligations. We have mortgages. We have car loans or credit card debt. And instead of telling people, here's Dave Ramsey in Financial Peace University, go get your own financial house in order, that those of us who are better off or have assets or finances available, help those people pay off those debts. And then they get together, and they pay off the next person's debts, and they all get together and pay off the next one. And within years, the whole church is free from any financial obligations, and you're free to do whatever the Spirit calls you. This would be incredible unity, would it not? It would also probably lead you to think of a few questions or concerns, like how do you avoid abuse of such generosity? How does somebody avoid getting taken advantage of? But that's exactly what this early church had to deal with. And they just trusted the Spirit. And they went out to do this work knowing that the Spirit would take care of the details through the chaos and the mess of us broken and needy but redeemed people. It's through the messiness of people that God answers our prayers to be witnesses in our communities. But with that thought of abuse of our generosity in mind, now we can transition to chapter 5. 
We don't pursue this unity at all costs, as though we say, we want everyone to enjoy this, so everyone come on in and, and, and take advantage of all the goodness that we have. There are expectations for this community that we call church. And if you compromise on these expectations, it becomes a, a severe threat to this spirit's unity. Chapter 4 ended with this commendation of Barnabas. This is the type of guy that I'm talking about for this spirit-empowered generosity. And then chapter 5 begins with, but Ananias and Sapphira. It's like the opposite of Ephesians 2 where Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God. Now we have, you guys were all so generous, but Ananias and Sapphira. Now things are about to get serious. Verses 1 through 11 are basically the counterexample to Barnabas and his generosity. I'll just read the first two verses to set the scene again. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So it looked to the rest of the church like they were doing just the same thing as Barnabas. They had property. They sold it all. They show up with arms full of cash, apparently, and, and then they just set it down at the apostles' feet. And everyone's going, oh, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, all of you guys, this is incredible. But they kept some of it for themselves. They sold they got a bunch of money and they said, oh, maybe, maybe we ought to keep some just in case. And Peter verifies this story with Sapphira in verses 7 and 8. Did you sell the land for this much? Oh, yeah, yeah, Peter, we did. Yep, that's exactly how much we sold it for. But really, they only gave a portion of it. And in, so that wasn't exactly true. And in verses 3 and 4, we see that their sin was that they not simply that they kept the money, but they lied about how much money there was, maybe to protect themselves in case the Spirit didn't come through, maybe in case the apostles weren't really as trustworthy as they had hoped. There's no command that they had to go sell their property and give it to the church. Becoming Christian doesn't mean we become communists. The command was simply to care for one another, love one another, take care of each other's needs, Leave it up to the Spirit to determine within each one of us how we're going to take care of each other. Peter said in verse 4, Ananias, you could have kept the money. You could have kept the land. It was in your possession. It was up to you to decide what to do with it. That was your right. So the sin was that they made themselves look far more generous than they actually were. They lied to Peter. And in their lie, they actually misrepresented who God is. As representatives of God in this world, we get the great privilege to show to the world God's character and nature and his generosity towards us in Christ. Jesus says he emptied himself of all of his heavenly treasure. He who was rich became poor so that we in him might become rich. So when you give, when you just, everything you get, you give and share with others, you are being like Christ. Yet Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look generous. They wanted the pats on the back for it without actually doing the work. They told a lie with their lives 
about who God is. They make it look like God says he emptied himself for our sakes, but he didn't really. They made it look like Jesus promises us heavenly treasures, but he doesn't really. This type of lie is an offense to the very nature of God, which is why you see Peter say to Ananias in verse 3 that he lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he says he didn't lie to just men, to the apostles. He lied to God himself, which, by the way, is Trinitarian proof that the Holy Spirit is God. He lied to God, the Spirit, so he lied to God. So this lie is a direct attack upon God. Little lies may seem harmless, but we are made in the image of God. Remember when Adam and Eve were created, we are made to represent who God is in this world. So every single sin, no matter how small, as Adam and Eve found out, deserves death. At this critical stage in laying the foundation for the growth of this church that's going to go worldwide, God had to declare that purity in Christ is far more important than any facade, pretend wall, or mask of unity. Unity is only going to come through purity focused on Christ. So notice in verse 3 this interesting source of Ananias' lie. Peter said that Ananias' heart was filled by Satan. Well, just in chapter 4, everybody was filled by the Holy Spirit, apparently except for Ananias and Sapphira. In that moment, they were imaging Satan more than they were imaging God, just like Adam and Eve in the garden when they believed Satan's lie. And Peter says in verse 9 that Sapphira was testing the Spirit, still evoking this imagery of the garden again where Satan comes up to Eve and says, did God really say, do you really think that God is going to kill you if you eat that piece of fruit? Sapphira's thinking, did God really say, do you think he's really going to kick us out of this church or kill us if we just keep a little bit back and tell him we didn't? Ananias and Sapphira are testing to see if God really has authority here. Is his authority, is the authority of Christ present in this church and among the apostles? This is an important theme in the book of Acts. Jesus has left the scene. He died and rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. And now people are going, oh, who's in charge of this thing? Where's the, all that authority that he had? What happens to the people of God after Jesus left? With the king gone, who carries this authority? So we look back into the gospels and we see at various times Jesus handed some of this authority to the disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He's handing off some of that authority to the apostles. So here in our text for today, we're seeing the emphasis on the authority of the apostles. The apostles are the ones giving their testimony with great power. Everyone lays their treasures at the apostles' feet. Peter, the spokesman of the apostles, is the one trying this case. He's the judge of this case. And by the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders are being done. And apparently by their shadows, too. That's a little strange. But the point of all of this authority, this, the apostles, the point of all of this is that the apostles carry this authority that Jesus had. So rejecting the authority of the apostles is rejecting Christ himself. 
Lying to the apostles is lying to Christ himself. So the question that this section is really asking is, what is going to unify God's people? Is it going to be some common shared worldly interest? What is it that binds God's people together? Well, we see the emphasis on the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. So you might say, the Holy Spirit. And that wouldn't be a wrong answer. But the Holy Spirit's always pointing away from himself towards somebody else. The Spirit represents the authority of Christ within his people, within the church and her leaders. God's people are unified in common surrender to Christ's authority It's easy to sell all of your property and give it away when the moment you came to Christ, you gave it all to him anyway. So if he says, give it up, no problem. It's not mine anymore. So what is it that unifies this church? Or what unifies Redemption City Church in Rochester? What unifies all of our churches together as the universal church? It's common surrender to Christ led by the same Spirit, alive in each one of you, pointing us all to Christ. That's why I can come from a different city, and we can sing together, because we have all given our lives to Christ. This is like what Paul said in Ephesians 5, that when you are filled by the Holy Spirit, you become a people who are submissive. You submit to one another, and to the authority that he gave to us through the apostles. But now that the apostles are long gone, how do we submit to Christ and his apostolic authority? We're not Catholics where we have this succession of apostolic authority in the popes. It's right here. This is the apostolic authority that gives us great grace, that shapes us and unifies us, that purifies us. This is the testimony of the apostles that makes us so generous like one another, or like Christ was toward us. The power of the Holy Spirit that we pray for and that we long for is always connected to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. You can't claim the power of the Holy Spirit in your life if you haven't surrendered your life to the authority of Christ in His apostolic Word. Ananias and Sapphira, with everybody watching, found out this lesson in a rather harsh way and very quickly. It is serious to claim that you are a messenger of Christ in the power of the Spirit and you have not surrendered your life to him. And so God killed them. Instead of having Peter begin the process of church discipline where he confronted them himself and then went and brought some others in and then shared it all with the church, the Holy Spirit just stepped in and said, I got this, Peter, dead. That is how serious purity in the church is. Ananias and Sapphira were killed for their sin. But look at the response in verses 5 through 11. With great fear, the people heard these things. Unity in Christ is not going to come at the expense of purity and at the expense of surrender to his apostolic authority. After all of these events unfolded, Ananias and Sapphira were killed and buried. All the people knew with certainty that the call to discipleship in Christ is serious. This isn't a game. This isn't a club that we're joining where you just hang out with people who like to do the same things you like to do. 
Surrendering your life to Christ is a matter of life and death. But there's also a joyful response to this great fear that they experienced in verses 12 to 16. Here we see the results of the Spirit's unity. I'll read those one more time. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And then they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women so that even they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So again, this section begins with another conjunction, saying, all of that stuff you just heard about with unity and purity in the Spirit under the banner of the gospel. All of that applies now to this scene at the temple. Solomon's portico is like just a a big porch out next to the temple where everyone would hang out either before or after they went in and offered their sacrifices. Good Jews would go here and worship together. And because early Christians were all Jews, this is how they continued their practice. They went and worshiped. But by this time, this new sect of Judaism had the ones that believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they kind of got for themselves a little bit of a reputation. Nobody could deny the signs and wonders that they were doing. There was some interesting power at work among these guys. As we saw Dave preach back in chapter four, the leaders threatened to arrest them, but they're like, but there's something going on here we can't deny. Everyone knew what was going on. So much so that we see in verses 15 and 16, that people were bringing people from all over Jerusalem and the surrounding cities to be healed. Additionally, it looks like when you watch this community, they really care for one another. My goodness, they hang out all the time. They eat at each other's houses all the time. They're praying together and worshiping at the temple always. Man, they care for one another. There wasn't a needy person among them. So Luke writes, none of the rest dared join them But the people held them in high esteem. People outside of the church looked at them and thought, wow, look at their commitment. They are serious. And the words, the rest here in that verse refers to the other Jews at the temple. The ones looking upon them going, oh my goodness, can you see what they're doing? They care for one another. They have these powerful deeds of healing. There's something really cool going on here. But they didn't dare join them, Luke says. Why not? Why wouldn't you want to join that? Well, first of all, probably most importantly, these guys were following a Messiah, a Savior, who was crucified by the Romans. I I like your story, guys, but he died. No, no, he didn't. Okay, whatever. You guys are crazy. What kind of Messiah can't even defeat the Pharisees and the Roman governor. Our Messiah is supposed to come in and vanquish his enemies, take over the Roman Empire, and rule the world from Israel. And then, look what happens to people who aren't fully committed, who aren't fully on board. Apparently, if you waver a little bit, they kill you, or they kick you out. Yeah, you guys, 
You got something special going on, but thanks, but no thanks, I'm out. I'll have none of what you're having. So the church has gained this reputation for being uncommonly unified and extremely holy. The Spirit came upon them with great power and great grace and instilled within each of them great fear of God. But look at the incredible result that happened anyway. Despite so many people's hesitation, verse 14 says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. The result of such unity in this diversity, centered around purity in Christ and his resurrection, there was more growth than ever before. Pressing into one another in Christ, emboldened their witness, resulting in more people coming to Christ, converting out of their sin into holiness and into the body, the church. This is completely backward from what church growth strategy teaches us today. If you want to grow a church, we're told, then you identify that common cultural interest and you build your identity around that. And then when the people come to you, for goodness sake, don't rock the boat with church membership expectations and discipline and doctrinal stands and pulpit pounding. That is a surefire way to destroy a church. But we see here that this is not how Jesus will build his church. He wants people who have surrendered everything to him, who are filled with the Spirit to display in his power this unified love towards one another. And we hold each other accountable to this extremely high calling with the apostolic authority of God's word to make us more like Christ, to love like he does. God is not messing around. His glory is at stake in what we do here. This is how the gospel is proclaimed in Albert Lee in southern Minnesota to the ends of the earth. So the question for you guys to end seems somewhat obvious at this point. Why are you gathered with these people? Why are you a church? Why are you here today? Perhaps you've been drawn here like others at the temple were to the early church because of some great and mighty works being done, because of the love you've seen people have for one another, or because of the power and authority the, the pastors preach with. But we also need to realize that what it is that creates this grace and this unity. It's the holiness of God present by the Spirit of Christ in each one of you who trust in Christ. This presence of God's Spirit in the church makes demands on our lives. He doesn't necessarily command that each one of you give up all of your property and give the money to your pastors. Actually, the call of Christ on your life is far greater than that. He wants everything for himself. He wants it all. He wants all of your devotion. He wants all of your affections. He wants your entire life to find its treasure in heaven with him. He wants you to surrender your life to him and display that surrender in a local context that we call church. I fear that too often we read texts like the one Dave preached on a couple weeks ago where we face opposition and we're told to be bold in Christ to keep proclaiming the gospel. 
And we say, yes, I need to be more personally bold. And then Tyler comes and says, and the way you get that boldness is prayer. And you say, yes, I need to improve my personal prayer life, certainly. And then we'll read a text like this and say, oh, now I need to be more personally generous. But don't see this as a call to be more disciplined with your spiritual gifts and with your own devotional life, see it as a call to dig in deeper with one another. What are the ways that you can show this unity of the Spirit with the people in this room? Who are the people in this room who need the generosity of Christ through you? This spiritual power isn't displayed individually, but corporately, together, as a body. You're called to love one another in such a way that's so powerful, so undeniably from God that your neighbors desperately want what you have, but they also look at you and go, I don't know if I can do that. That's really hard. The reason why you have ministries like men's and women's prayer groups or mentoring and discipleship ministries is so you can be unified together and display as a team this unity in the spirit, so you can have a powerful witness together in this community. Not every one of you has the same gifts. Not everyone's an evangelist, but when you are knit together as a body, you love one another, that evangelist has an opportunity to display something because of your great hospitality. We live in Minnesota. We are a bunch of people who are slow to jump in. We hate doing anything that's too radical. Don't ask me to do that. I'll just be right here in my fishing boat. We're skeptical of anything that's too radical, and we fear opening up and letting others into our personal lives. But like the illustration that I began with, this is how God answers our prayers. He brings us broken and messy people to help with this powerful witness in Christ. Evangelism isn't a program or an event or each one of us as individuals going out into our neighborhoods, it's broken, messy, passive, blood-bought Minnesotans putting Christ's love on display through this uncommon, spirit-empowered unity. So my prayer is that both Sojourners Church and Redemption City Church and all the churches that we partner with and plant together will display Christ in our cities and draw more people than ever to Christ because of our uncommon unity in the spirit for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, help this not to just fall on deaf ears. Help me to return back home and love your people in Rochester even more because I am certain that your spirit is at work. Your spirit will do these things and I look forward to hearing reports and sharing reports with churches all over southern Minnesota that your spirit is doing an uncommon unifying work as we all lift our eyes to Christ. God bless Sojourners Church that they would experience this power, this holiness, this unity, and it would result in more people than ever coming to Christ multitudes of men and women. God, would you be pleased to do that through us broken, weak, humble people? Because it is the way that you will receive the most glory. Amen.